Welcome to the Elk Talk Podcast with Randy Newberg and Corey Jacobson. Presented by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. The goal is what little you and I know about elk hunting, we share with people. I've got an elk building, it's like 120 yards away, what do I do? First off, the thought would never cross my mind when an elk being 120 yards away to call anybody <laughs> on a cell phone. <laughs> All elk. All the time. Only elk. Only elk. Well, it's us having conversations. So we usually go down some rabbit holes. But if you hunt with Corey Jacobson, you will find the landscape is full of rabbit holes. We're just going to make this up as we go. And you look at it like, oh, that's a target-rich environment. But if you're trying to single one out, a solo target there is much easier to go into than a, a big group. We record everything, so there's no BS and no lying, no faking it with us. <laughs> Did we hit the record I button? I forgot to hit the record <laughs> button. If you want to know something about elk hunting, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. <laughs> Should we give them a list of all the other podcasts wow. where they might learn something? <laughs> The Elk Talk Podcast is brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, ensuring the future of elk, other wildlife, their habitat, and our hunting heritage. To become a member, go to rmef.org. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by Mountain Ops, making outdoor energy and performance nutrition to make you a stronger and healthier elk hunter. They have a full line of hunting-related supplements, including meal replacement shakes, multivitamins, pre-workout fuel, and post-workout recovery, and my favorite, their new performance protein bars that, by the way, are packed with 270 calories and 20 grams of protein, but contain less than 6 grams of sugar. Visit mountainops.com to learn more and to order, and be sure to use the promo code ELKTALK to save on your next order. The podcast is also brought to you by Gerber. Uh, go to gerbergear.com and learn about the knives, the vital, the big game vital, the Gator Premium, all the things that we use when we're out in the woods, and not just knives, but also some really cool multi-tools that they have. And we have a promo code for Gerber as well. Just use the code ELKTALK to save 20% on your orders at gerbergear.com. And we are also brought to you by Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls. And Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls is the original designer and inventor of the pallet plate diaphragm that's completely changed the way elk calls are made and used. And to find out more and to order your elk calls, go to RockyMountainHuntingCalls.com or BuglingBull.com and use promo code ELKTALK and you're going to save 15% on all of your elk calls and elk call accessories. The Elk Talk Podcast is also brought to you by GoHunt.com. Uh, go to GoHunt.com and sign up for the Insider. The Insider is changing how hunts and hunting information are found. No doubt about that. Use promo code ELKTALK, and when you do, when you sign up for the Insider, you're going to get $50 of store credit, mad money, in their gear shop. Lastly, the University of Elk Hunting online course is a proud partner of the Elk Talk podcast. And within the University of Elk Hunting online course, you're going to find nearly 60 chapters organized in 17 modules of elk hunting instruction aimed at making you a more successful elk hunter. From planning and e-scouting to calling strategies and packing 
every imaginable elk hunting topic is included in the online course. And regardless of your previous elk hunting experience or success, I'm confident the University of Elk Hunting online course will make you a more confident, more successful elk hunter. Just visit elk101.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 20% when you sign up for a membership to the University of Elk Hunting online course. And with that, Corey, we are ready to get into it. Let's jump into it. Good afternoon, Corey. Howdy, Randy. How is it in Idaho today? It is beautiful and sunny. It is here, too. The ground squirrels are making a mess of the place. I'm going to have to bring my traps here and thin them out at the office. Really? They're everywhere. Yeah, you got ground squirrels there or gophers we do. or whatever. We've got they... A little bit of everything. Yeah, the gophers run a little destruction in our yard, but we got a couple cats yep. and it seems to be helping. Hmm. Okay, that'll work. See, yeah. I don't have any cats here at the office, and I got this group of gophers who keep digging underneath the sidewalk. And uh, I cleaned them out a few years ago. Uh, one of the tenants in the neighboring suite complained, what is that? There's a dead gopher squirrel out there in a trap. Uh, yeah, stand by. There's going to be more. <laughs> Just wait till they come and start chewing the wires out of your network cabling in the crawl space. You'll want me to get all of them. <laughs> so they didn't have a problem with you trapping gophers? No. That's when uh, when I told them that that happened, they looked at me like, does that really happen? I'm like, yes, it happens. And if you ever go watch a movie, Caddyshack, that's me and the gophers <laughs> right here. I'm Bill Murray. <laughs> Freeze, gopher! <laughs> uh, but I used to have a pellet gun here at the office, and the rock doves, i.e. pigeons, that took up residency here. I can tell you how good pigeons taste. They're pretty darn good. Really? Uh, Why did yeah. they get the name Rock but, Dove then? I don't know. Uh, that's <laughs> what people call them, Rock Dove Pigeons. But I'm right next to the MSU football stadium, right? So their football stadium, they had pigeons everywhere. They got mad at them, and they went and put these little poker things up there, like jabbing little needles. Yeah. Well, the pigeons didn't have any place to land, so they all come over to our buildings. So Perfect. I'd come here in the morning in my Honda Pilot. I'm sitting right out there with my pellet gun out the window. Boom, boom. <laughs> I think we One can day, draw please. an analogy from that situation to elk hunting. Well, it was kind of practicing for grouse hunting. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> One morning I come up and just about the time I get ready, police officer comes by. He's like, hey, what are you doing? I said, I'm shooting these pigeons that are pooping all over me and our tenants. And look at all the mess they're making. Ever since the university changed the football stadium, he's like, well, you know, you can't be shooting those. I said, this is private property. I can do it. I damn well, please. He says, not in city limits. You can't. <laughs> I'm like, what? He said, no. You can't shoot pigeons in city limits. I'm like, all right. I said, well, what if we call them Eurasian collar doves? They're an invasive, non-native species. He just looked at me like, what does that matter? <laughs> uh, so I had to go and buy the same contraptions the university put in their oh, stadium. No stuff so when you walk into my building now there's all these po pointy poker nail things that the pigeons can't sit on 
So I haven't eaten any pigeons for about four years now. So <laughs> your stomach probably thinks you. And your taste oh, no, color. they weren't that bad. No, yeah. they weren't bad at all. Really? Uh, yeah, but I'd come here and shoot them early in the day. Like, I'm an early riser anyhow, and I thought, well, I'll take care of them before all the other people come to the office. I can't believe that guy was complaining. Yeah. I don't know who turned me in, but... How, how can you not protect your own property? Yeah. Especially from something uh, that's devaluing it. Exactly. I mean, I would get out there about once a week. I had to go out there with the snow shovel and scrape it on the on the concrete to get all the pigeon poop off the concrete. Man. I mean, it's like, oh, uh, first world problem. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you, you, you got me with something there. I'm wondering, how are you a morning person? Because you texted me at midnight last night. And if you're up at midnight, uh, how do you wake up early? Uh, you don't get a lot of sleep. Yeah. I I was up late last night because I'm trying to get everything caught up before I leave town on Monday. So I was up doing payroll. Today's the first. I thought, you know, my employees wouldn't think it was a very good April Fool joke <laughs> if I said no paychecks today, guys. Uh so and then as I go to bed, I look up to my phone. I'm like, I wonder what my schedule is for tomorrow. And I look and I see a podcast. I'm like, Oh no, that was the podcast we were supposed to do today. <laughs> so that's why that's why I text you an apology at eleven fifty seven at yeah. night. I was only what, twelve hours, thirteen hours late? <laughs> you know, uh, like I like I told you, if uh if I would have been paying attention, I would have called you and reminded you. So there's a uh, Oh, so you no were more, ready to do a podcast I just anyhow. Say it's no more your fault than <laughs> it is mine. So. <laughs> Oh man, oh, I felt so bad. Now, I, now the truth comes out. Yep. So, hey, did you did you? Not that the audience probably cares at this point, but did you get your Montana application in today? I did it's not. No, I'm uh, mm. I'm doing a bonus point and a preference point this year. So that You're uh, a point buyer. I'm a point buyer this year. Just with you know, with what we've got going on this fall, I'm uh, I'm starting to book mm-hmm. up here. So. I've yeah, got to well, not overdo it. Because of your kind invitation to be on your Destination Elk program next or this fall, mm-hmm. me and Michael from my office applied together for a limited entry hunt, archery hunt, mm. and uh, we'll see if we draw. That and would be cool. We'll, we could ruin your Destination Elk series in no time. I mean, <laughs> I... I'm talented. I can ruin a brand in an hour. I, I can't so. tell you how many people have emailed and sent recommendations that we get a newbie group, like a couple rookies, and put them mm-hmm. out in a camp and film them and share their struggles okay. with everyone. Knock and, yourself out. Yeah, kind of a cool concept, so we might have to do that in the do, future. Do, do we film them, or do they f- go get their own camera person? Yeah, I mean, we'd if have we're going to... newbie rookie the whole way. <laughs> I don't know that anybody would enjoy it very much with a with a rookie camera guy. <laughs> I can just see myself trying to video for somebody, and I think the viewers would demand their money back. Oh yeah, even though it's free. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I think the podcast will go live before the Colorado deadline. Yep, of April sixth. Uh, so. Is it eight p.m.? 
I think that's what it is. I got the rig sitting right here because I'm applying for me and some of my crew today. Yeah, 8 p.m. Mountain Time. Yeah, I've uh, so. my eyeballs are still burning from staring at the Colorado rigs and the Go Hunt website because I uh-huh. am the holder of 16 mule deer bonus points or preference mm-hmm. points in Colorado. And wow. uh, as you know, I struggled mightily because I just, I'm not tapped into the mule deer information like I am on elk. And so fortunately, Go Hunt had some good information and yeah, I, uh, I got applied. So, how, how many elk points do you have in Colorado? I have the same. So I have 16 this year. I'll have 17 next year. What are you waiting for? I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I think there's uh, hunts I can draw that take 10 points, and there's hunts I can't draw that take 20 points, but I haven't really found much in between. Nope. You are in that place they call no man's land. Yeah. <clears throat> that's a heck of a deal. I'll just keep, I feel I'll sorry keep for you. Them. Well, that small game yeah. license I buy every year down there comes in handy. For really? them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. you're making your contribution to, to you know, conservation and such. So Yeah. Maybe they'll introduce yeah. wolves there or something with it. <laughs> oh, there you go. Do we need to talk about that no, today? No. Sorry, I didn't okay. mean to bring that up. <laughs> I was going to say, that wasn't on the talking point list that we discussed, so... <laughs> But you can't hardly talk about Colorado anymore without folks getting wound up about the wolf no ballot initiative last November. And we got pretty worked up about it, too. But I guess now it's we're going to have to live with it and figure out how they manage them yeah, if that's they why decide I, to manage them. That's why I put in for mule deer this year. I figure within two years they won't have any left. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh. I hope that's, you're wrong that's on tongue that. tongue in cheek. Yeah, I... Uh, Okay. They did some changes to the season dates and everything this year. The mule deer hunt kicked back a week, so gets a little bit yeah. more into the rut. And hmm. with some of those so, changes, I thought this is the year to do it. Here's what I'm doing. I'm possibly I'm going to try stretch my points. This is not the year to stretch your deer points. Yeah. Uh, but if I don't draw deer, I think my my son Matthew he's got nine points. He's going to be one of those people everyone complains about that causes point creep because <laughs> he's applying for a unit that takes three or four points. So some dude's jumping in with nine points, and they're going to be like, what the heck? This is this is crazy. And if he draws, I'm going to buy an over-the-counter third-season bull elk tag. Nice. So... I figure, what the heck, if he's going deer hunting, I want to be on that hunt, but I don't want to just be standing there with my thumb in my ear. <laughs> you don't want to no. be a dead weight. No. You need, you need a tag so, in your pocket. That's right. And I got to have an excuse to be floundering around there, gasping for air, seeing if I can get up the mountain with the rest of those young whippersnappers. So, yeah. Uh, but no, April 6th, uh, folks. Yeah, April 6th is the deadline, 8 p.m., and uh, you do have to buy a small game license, an annual small game license, because they offer a one-day one, but it's not yeah. a qualifying license that you have to have in your possession to be able to apply for a deer or an elk tag in Colorado. Yeah. And then you got to buy, what's a stamp? There's some stamp you got to yeah, buy. Yeah, habitat stamp that. for 875 yeah. or something. 
Yeah, by the time you're all done with everything, the non-refundable portion, plus your elk application fee, your deer application fee, it's like 115 bucks or something, isn't it? Yep. <clears throat> something like that. Yep. Uh, I hope my wife never sees that. She, I, I purposefully hide the credit card statements in application season. So you should leave Colorado out because Colorado is one of the less expensive ones to apply for. It is. It definitely yeah. is. So, uh, but I think she looks at it and she just is like, this guy is out of hand. <laughs> <laughs> if your wife doesn't know that by now, then she's, uh, she's not going to, she's not going to clue in from what you're doing here. I'm pretty That's sure true. she already 30. knows. <clears throat> Yeah, 32 years, I'm pretty sure she's just given up. So. Yeah. But hey, one, uh, one, thing I, one idea or mm -hmm. one thought that came to mind when you're talking, your son has nine points, and mm -hmm. uh, he's putting it in for a hunt that only takes two or three, and anytime I hear yeah. that, I think, well, why don't you put in with him, and they'll take your points and average them, and both of you can draw. But in Colorado, they're not no that kind. Luck. Yeah. No, in Colorado, they have solved the point averaging with grandma problem. <laughs> you mean there really were right. people who put their grandparents in for every point they could possibly get, and then once they got I, up to 20 or so, they would put in for, with zero know. points? And I've heard that happen, but in Colorado, <laughs> it doesn't do you any good because if the party, like Matthew has nine, I have two. The party is assigned the same point total as the lowest point holder. So I'd bring him down to two. Yep. So, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. So, so did you see this uh, one email question we got where the guy uh, talked about uh, the Colorado archery elk seasons and uh, what part of that season he he prefers to hunt and wanted to know what part of it we prefer to hunt. And I'd have to say in full disclosure, I've elk hunted in Colorado four times or five times. I've always done rifle hunts. So I've never had this weird dynamic of a season that's interrupted by uh, the muzzleloader hunters partway through the year or partway through the season. Uh, have you ever archery hunted in Colorado? I have. One time. The oh. only time I've actually hunted in Colorado was archery. Oh. And which dates did you pick? We hunted opening day for mm. the next 10 days, and it was early that year, like August 25th, 26th, somewhere in there. Oh, hmm. We didn't definitely didn't have to contend with the muzzleloader hunters, but we contended with... Uh, Quite a few other hot hunters, weather. and the, you know the weather was hot, but it wasn't. It didn't. I, I wouldn't say it kept the hunt from unfolding. Uh, there were quite a few hunters in there, especially the first few days, and then it kind of thinned out. But man, that early season is just tough. We'd get a bold bugle here and there, but it was, uh, it was tough to get action. Yeah. Well, this year, 2021 archery season. Oh, it looks like they've. In their new season structure, it looks like it stays the same, September 2nd through the 30th. They did, yeah. This they, year, uh, they set next year. Set dates. So. Yeah, but the the floater within that is the muzzleloader season. Yep. So this year, the muzzleloader season, 
that happens concurrently is September 11th through the 19th. So there's nine days of muzzleloader hunting in the middle of archery season. So, and I've heard mixed reviews on, on that. You know, some people say mm-hmm. that they don't even see anybody muzzleloader hunting, and other people say it's a sea of orange with muzzleloader hunters. And so I think it really depends on yeah. the area you're in and some of that. But it definitely makes it tough because mm-hmm. that's one of my favorite weeks to hunt is that, you know, 12th through the 18th time frame. And it seems like every year that third week is when they're throwing the muzzleloader hunters in there in Colorado. And so if you get mm-hmm. a, a full moon that next week and, you know, it's just makes it really difficult to decide when you're going to go hunt Colorado. So you're telling me I should buy a muzzleloader. <laughs> I would say that muzzleloader hunters probably have the best week to hunt if you're uh, if you're wanting to hunt the rut. Hmm. Well, maybe their commission was full of muzzleloader hunters when they passed that regulation. Evidently. Maybe. But I have heard that the you know, and I don't know if it's a reaction to all of the pressure that's there during that week, but you know, uh, I, I think the bugling action in Colorado is definitely tapering. As far as getting into them, you know, now there's there's so many people that they get pushed from one side of the canyon to the other and back and forth, and they're not as vocal. And obviously, like mm-hmm. anything, if you get in the right place and get back in and work hard, you can get into some good hunting. But with the populations yeah. that are camped out at some of those trailheads and the pressure that those elk see, it, it makes it tough not only during muzzleloader week, but in the days after that, the elk just get pressured and spooked and aren't quite as vocal. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm i inclined to hunt later in the month rather than earlier in the month. Like if Michael and I draw the tag we're applying for for the destination elk hunt, uh, we'll be going the last week of September. Yeah. Let everyone get it out of their system. Yep. So, And it depends, and, you know, I... I some of the areas we hunt, I prefer to hunt early. Some of them I prefer to hunt during that lead up into the peak rut, and some of them are are better in the peak rut. And I think it really depends on, you know, the demographics of the elk, the bull-to-cow ratio, the overall population of elk. Uh, your hunting style obviously plays into that, but it's, uh, it makes it nice when we're trying to schedule out a September to to know that, hey, we can go there and hunt because it's always good early and then we can save this tag for the prime time. Mm-hmm. And so we usually, we're usually not lacking, except for last year, we lacked in action the first eight days of the season or so here in Idaho. Yeah. So you're telling if, if I was inviting Corey Jacobson this year and I said, hey, Corey, let's go on September 20th, which is one of my favorite days to be elk hunting. You'd say, have you looked at the moon phase, Randy? <laughs> I would say that. Okay. Full moon. Uh, when I was in Portland last week doing Q&A sessions on public land elk hunting, someone asked this question and he asked, is Corey here? I said no, but he gave me permission to make it up on his behalf. <laughs> uh, so I did. And, and the guy says, uh, do you change your daily hunting patterns or tactics based on what you see as changing barometric pressure in the weather forecast? You want to know what my response would have been? 
Uh, yeah, because uh, I'm going to compare it to what I told him on your behalf. <laughs> I would have said, what's barometric pressure? <laughs> okay. Oh, you gave him a better answer than that, I'm guessing. <laughs> well, I had some smart aleck joke about being a weatherman. <laughs> uh, but, you know, weatherman's the best profession in America. You can be wrong nine out of ten times and you just get promoted higher yep. up the food chain. Uh, there's no accountability. Uh, low expectations, and even if you don't meet those low expectations, you probably get a bonus at the end of the year. Uh, totally. Then I went on. <clears throat> I went on to tell him that speaking for Corey, the, the amount of variation to his schedule based on barometric pressure is strictly a function to whether or not he's wore out a pair of shoes that day because <laughs> he hunts the same way all the time. He just goes. I have not seen him slow down because of high or low barometric pressure. I said, now me, I change my hunting based on barometric pressure because there's certain times to take a nap and high barometric pressure is good napping time. (laughs) Low or decreasing barometric pressure is when I really do my best hunting. And uh, he looked at me. Like, I was just saying, did he buy heck? that? <laughs> no, he just looked at me like, "Are you for real, man?" <laughs> I came here with a serious uh, question. Uh, and then yeah. after he gave me that look, I said, "You know what? I really don't worry about it because yeah. when I'm out in the woods, I'm hunting all day long. No matter if the barometer is rising or falling, I'm hunting, and so- it doesn't change how I hunt." Uh, you know, and I think so. if we were if we were in the Midwest or back east, thinking about going out to a deer stand or something, and maybe there is a correlation there, and we look at oh, barometric pressure is high tonight. I'm not going to waste the night. I'm going to go out and tinker in the shop or something. Um, but mm-hmm. out of here, you know, you got your seven days carved out, and you've got to hunt every minute. There's there's no sense saying oh, historically the high barometric pressure has made it tough to get an elk to respond to you. Man, that's go and do it. Yeah. So since you weren't there, I'm going to ask you all these questions okay. that I remember. <laughs> uh, one guy said, if I could hunt four days, the, the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, the second weekend of season, and then I could come back and hunt four days the next weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, or I could hunt the full seven days of a week. He said, I can do either. What would you do? I told them I'd hunt seven days in a row for a couple of reasons. One is I feel like about the third day I'm starting to get things figured out of what's going on at that time. And I wouldn't want to have to leave and hit the reset button and try to solve the riddle again when I came back four or five days later. Yeah. Uh, so he uh, now watch. He probably put in for a week of vacation based on me <laughs> saying that. <clears throat> and it's going to be 85 degrees every day. He's out there hunting, and he says, yeah, I knew I should have split it up. See, and I would look at it and say, okay, you can only hunt seven days if you go straight through, but you get eight days if you break it up. So I might have looked at that and said that extra day would be a a good deal. Plus, like you said, the weather, if it is hot and dry, you at least have a few days in between to go home and hope the weather changes. But then again, mm-hmm. like you said, day three, you get it figured out. Day four, you have the most incredible elk day that you've ever experienced. And day five, you're stuck in the office wondering how many other people are out there messing up the little drainage you found all the elk in. So, 
Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's yeah. ever a right answer. That's the hard part. Is there's well, you just have well, to weigh the pros and the cons. And that's what I told everybody: is you are here asking questions that are purely answered with opinion. Yeah. There are no facts involved here. And if I don't know an answer, you'll hear me say, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, 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 yeah, you know, <laughs> that's, that's code word for I'm making this up. Yep. So if I say, you know, more than twice in a five minute period, that was me faking it. So basically what so. you're saying is you and I are a lot like weathermen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We, we don't ever opinion. have any good answers, just opinions. We make it up on the go. I mean, that sounds mm-hmm. a lot like a meteorologist. Yeah. And so, if there are any meteorologists listening, that was completely a joke. Don't get offended. No, it wasn't. <laughs> you know how many times the weatherman's messed up my fishing trip? <laughs> uh, so, uh, another very common question is that a lot of people like to hunt by themselves and they love to archery hunt. So they're calling. They said, the hard part is when I call, the bull's coming straight in at me. And I want to have a shot from the side or I'm afraid he's locked right in on where I'm at. And when he comes in, he just looks right at me. What should I do? Yeah. First off, anytime I hear somebody say they enjoy hunting elk solo, I think they've never (laughs) killed one. The second, you, the second you kill one by yourself, you're wishing you had a hunting partner. And yeah. uh, they, they definitely make that chore a little easier. Uh, but no, and I, you know, there's days I love to go out and just be alone, clear your head, you know, get after it, whatever it is. Uh, and it does, it, it complicates it when you're trying to call an elk in for the reasons you mentioned. Most of the time they can tell, they pinpoint where you're calling from. And when that happens, they get to 60 or 70 yards, and they can see the tree that you called from under, and they're not coming any closer until they see an elk. And so that hang-up is so much more difficult, which is why having a caller-shooter combo allows the the caller to be back behind the shooter and have the shooter actually be in the the pocket when the elk hangs up, if it's going to hang up. Uh, the other thing is, you know, trying to get a broadside shot is incredibly difficult because it involves you calling from a location and then having to circle downwind as you move in on the elk and get set up before the elk sees you moving, which depending on the terrain can be incredibly difficult. You know, the thicker it is, the noisier it is, the more open it is, the more visible you are. And so there's really a not a good answer for moving when you're trying to get in on a on an elk by yourself. And then the last one is, you know, and especially if, you know, we noticed it and talk a lot about it when a Roosevelt hunting, that thick country, your encounters are usually inside 20 yards, most of the time, realistically, probably inside 10 or 15 yards, and they poke their mm-hmm. head out of the brush and they don't turn broadside. So it is important to, to know the anatomy of an elk, and I would say at 10 or 15 yards, uh, especially in that brushy situation, there's, uh, there's a lot of validity to taking a frontal shot. Yeah. Well, the the number of questions that I got asked related to calling and setups was crazy. Yeah. And I said, look, guys, I, this is Randy Newberg giving this seminar, not Corey Jacobson. 
you know don't don't ask me this stuff that's that's why I let Corey do the calling and uh so but well, and uh, I think it's the it's I, the part that's the most exciting it's the part that's the mm-hmm. most confusing or it can be uh it's the yeah. part that there are so many variables that come into play that you know there's a hundred different answers you could give in every situation and I think that as, as these hunters, especially newer hunters, are looking at it, it can be really easy to get overwhelmed and develop a lot of questions about calling situations. The mm-hmm. uh, uh, One person said, and a couple other people nodded, so I think more than one person listens to our podcast. <laughs> they said, you guys always talk about wind being the number one reason people mess up an encounter. Why does that happen if you've been hunting elk as long as you have? <laughs> I just said, because I'm stupid. And like John Wayne says, you know, life's tough. It's really tough when you're stupid. <laughs> I, I didn't know what to tell him. It's like, you know what? <laughs> that's that. You're right. That's the mistake that I make. If I had to say of 10 screwed up encounters I had, Nine of them were messed up probably because I got lazy or too excited or something related to wind. And that applies whether it's a rifle or a bow. And he just looked at me like, well, (laughs) you should grow up someday. Well, uh, you know how how, uh, particular I am about thermals and the wind. Oh, I tell some stories. Yeah, it still messes us up. And the reason is... It's never constant, you know, and so you're taking mm-hmm. chances. No matter if the wind is directly in your face, you're still taking a chance. You go in from the side, you're taking a chance. I mean, there's always a gamble when you move in close to an elk that the wind is going to swirl just long enough. And especially when we're archery hunting, a lot of times you'll be inside 70 or 80 yards of that elk for a long time. And in the mountains, you know, as it transitions from shadows to sun on the hillside or from from sun to shadows, you're getting swirling winds, a little cloud cover in front of the sun. It changes from stable to unstable. There's just so many factors that cause that wind to continually be changing and shifting that even the best laid plan, the most strategic approach to getting the thermals right and getting in there can all be blown out of the water and in a matter of seconds. I am a living proof of that. I I set out every season to prove what you just said at least five times a year. (laughs) (laughs) And I told the, I told the person that I said, I, I try as hard as I can to manage the wind, but sometimes you, you think you're doing it right. And you can't control when the wind decides to vary in in direction or angle. And you're just, you're screwed. You're trying to do the best with what you're dealt. And there are no perfect conditions where you get to come straight, consistent, perfect, steady wind. You get to come from downwind. It never happens like that in the mountains. And so... You you know, you got on one side of the little draw, it's going this direction. You get in a little bit of shade and it's going 100 degrees different. And you go around a corner and it's going 80 degrees different. I said, I, I wish I could say that I could control the wind. I can't. I can control how I react to it and try my best and I'm aware of it. But it's still the number one reason why I screw it up. Yep. 
And our, you know, I would say our uh, mistakes due to the wind have decreased once we realized that if we get parallel with the elk, you know, at the same elevation level and move across mm -hmm. that way, it reduces the chances of getting busted by the wind just because of the wind direction. Uh, I guess we'll make a differentiation there between thermals and wind because wind is something yeah. that comes from a direction. So you have, you know, right. wind from the west or wind from the north and it's it's I wouldn't say constant in that direction but the prevailing direction is is coming from one area. Thermals are different. Thermals are just the natural draw of the air, the air current uh, as it relates to to ground temperature and pressure and other things. And you can have both of those things going on at the same time. So you can have thermals that when the wind dies down, they're, they're the, uh, the prevalent thing you have to worry about. And then the wind will gust up and all of a sudden it's blowing 90 degrees or you know, 180 degrees or whatever it might be. And so there's just so many uh, little, and you know, like you mentioned, you step on one side of the hill in the shadows and step out in the sun on the other side of the hill and it's going completely the opposite way. You throw wind into that and it's just, it can get pretty frustrating. But when, uh, when you think about thermals, they're either moving up the mountain or down the mountain. They don't move side hill. And with yeah. that knowledge, you can get at the same level as the elk and move across at that same level. And if the thermals do switch, it's usually not going to switch to a side hill and take your scent to the elk. So then you're just dealing with, you know, inconsistencies in the wind. And as long as you are moving into that little bit of wind with it coming into your face and you're moving side hill toward that elk so that the thermals are not working against you, it can definitely set you up to fail less. Yeah. So one of the listeners sent us an email that said, do thermals in canyons operate any differently than thermals in the mountains? And my answer was no. It's heavier air versus warmer air, one being lighter, one being heavier. And in just one little finger of the canyon, or one side of the canyon, it could be going 180 degrees different. Yep. Just like on one side of the mountain or one little side of the draw that you're climbing up, it can be complete opposite. Yeah, and it's so, you know, there's there's so much, so it's just so dynamic because if it's really warm out, say it gets up into the 90s, and that night it only cools down to the mid-50s, it might not be enough to, to change the direction of the air or the thermals very long. So when you wake up at right. 5 o'clock in the morning to head out, the thermals might already be coming up. And yep. same with, you know, if it's really cold, you're gonna, it's going to last a lot longer. If you have cloud cover, those thermals are going to continue coming down longer into the day. So it's not like, you know, sunrise where you can predict what time it's coming up over the mountain. It's, uh, there's a lot of factors that make that diurnal change happen. Yeah, we got another email where someone said uh, related to thermals. No matter what the thermal does, it seems like where my camp is set, it's either going up to the where the elk are bedded or down to where they're feeding. Uh, <laughs> and I wish they would have sent us a diagram, but in my head, I'm thinking, all right, you put your camp between where the elk are moving each day to bed and feed, feed, and bed. 
and I would never shut my camp there, but maybe I read the question wrong. No, you, you read that one right. I read it as well. And my first thought was, well, if you're using your tent as a ground blind, it might work out for you. But other than that, <laughs> you got, yeah. I mean, everything's going wrong. The elk is they're going up to, to bed for the day. They're going to smell you when you're coming through your camp in the middle of the day. All the elk that are feeding throughout the night are going to smell you all night. And it probably isn't going to take too long for them to either move out or go nocturnal and quit talking. So I would definitely yeah. suggest relocating camp. That's what my response was going to be is uh, don't be so excited about being close to elk that you set up your camp in a proximity that's going to mess it up. You found them, leave them alone <laughs> or, or, or be at least proceed with caution yeah. and hike for a mile or so to get to where they're at. And, uh, you know, you, you spend all this time e-scouting, all this time searching, and then when you find them, the last thing you want to do is stink the joint up and spook them off. Yep. And you and I, you know, we've talked a lot and I, I would say the majority of the questions that we get, uh, even from experienced elk hunters, is what's the secret to finding elk? That's just, that's yeah. the, I think the biggest piece, you can do all the scouting that, that helps you find the elk. You can use location bugles that helps you find the elk. All these tactics that we use and all the preparation we put into it are to help us find the elk. And once you find them, like you said, you don't want to, elk hunting's tough, but it's even tougher if you're stupid. And <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've learned that one the hard way. So, you know, don't go out and find elk and then blow them out because you, you don't want to hike an extra 400 yards or whatever the case may be. But I've always felt I need to always keep a ridge between myself and where the elk are. And I think if you keep a ridge between yourself and the elk, uh, if thermals are going up, they're never going to go up and then drop down the other side and, and get into the elk. And if they're going down, they're pulling away from where the elk are. So I always put a, a ridge in between me and the elk if I'm going to camp out and try to be close to them. Yeah. Well, I wish you would have been there answering all these questions. I could have been in the back eating donuts and <laughs> drinking coffee or something. <laughs> Calling on people next, next. <laughs> uh, I don't think I, they. I'm glad you were there and not me. Well, I they got their money's worth, I'm sure, because they didn't have to pay anything. So <laughs> I told them all at the beginning, you know, this advice is worth what you paid for it. So proceed with caution. That's right. Uh, so a couple other listener questions. Uh, shed hunting. You told me, and in a, in a, one of our listeners brought this up, and I, until you'd mentioned it, I never had heard this rationale. But they say that some of the reasons for regulations against allowing shed hunting in national parks or certain areas is that that takes nutrients away from rodents and the whole, you know, decomposition soil cycle. Uh, by not letting the antlers be there for the rodents to eat and turn into rodent turds and turn into <laughs> soil. and so The circle of life of is listeners. disrupted when you pick up an antler. Yeah. 
one of our listeners asked that same question of, you know, is that valid or is that, you know, does, is, is, should anyone be concerned about that? You got any thoughts on that or is there any science that supports it or is that just somebody came up with that idea because they didn't want folks that's seeking ex- out antlers somewhere? That's exactly what it is. So okay. the, uh, the first couple times I went into Yellowstone, there are, there's places, there used to be places where you would just trip over elk antlers. And it was, mm-hmm. it was a lot of fun for a shed hunter to go in there and just find them and take pictures and leave them because yeah. obviously it's illegal to, to take them. Right. And, mm-hmm. you know, the first few times that we, we asked the questions, you know, we ran into park rangers and different people there and just asked the question, why is it illegal? And they always gave us, hey, this is a national park. We want to preserve it. And these antlers provide, you know, as they break down, they go back into the ground and provide nutrition for for the animals. And like you mentioned, porcupines and squirrels and everything chew on them and get calcium from them. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking, I don't buy it. And then as we started, you know, asking more and more, it really comes down to management. I mean, obviously, in a national park, you can't take things out. You can't even pick up a piece of obsidian and put it in your pocket legally. Right. Um, and yeah. so, I mean, that's they're just preserving everything that's there. Because if, if we wanted to, we'd go in there and there's a lot more than just antlers we could probably find to take home with us. Uh, so I, I can see it there. But the rationale of antlers breaking down and decaying and going back into the ground to provide, provide nutrients and everything just... I, it's not enough. You look at winter range where the elk and the deer usually usually lose their antlers, and it's mm-hmm. a small band. I mean, we're talking a small band of elevation where where the elk winter or where the deer winter, and so you've got the yeah. other ninety percent of the landscape that doesn't have any antlers touching the ground in it, and that's where the elk go to to get nutrition. And so it's you know they aren't. Antlers, if every antler out there was picked up and not allowed to touch the ground, uh, I don't think that nutrients would be altered in any way. Hmm. Okay. Well, I don't know. I just hang them in trees. So, (laughs) Well, there you go. You're part of the problem. They aren't able to decay and go back into the ground because they're in a tree now. Yeah. Might as well just pick them well, up. I don't. Them home. I don't hang them in trees in national parks because <laughs> I think I'd get in trouble for that. I don't even. You know, I live next to one of the most popular national parks in our country, and I avoid it like the plague. It's like, man, I if I want to go outdoors, I don't want to have you know eight hundred thousand people fighting me, elbowing me to get the, you know. A soda pop and an ice cream or cotton candy for my little niece or something. (laughs) So that's why you go, and we used to go like starting in the mid 90s into Yellowstone when the the elk population was at its absolute highest. There were so many elk there, and we would go in September after we filled our tag in Idaho just to video elk, just to be around more elk bugling. I thought, if I'm going to, you know, spend the rest of my vacation somewhere listening to elk bugle, where's the best place to go? Well, a herd of 24,000 elk in Yellowstone was the logical place. Mm -hmm. And in September, tourists are gone. There's no traffic. The campgrounds are empty. I didn't have to wait in line for cotton candy once. It was, uh, (laughs) that's, that's the time to go. (laughs) Uh, 
okay. Well, I uh, I guess uh, well, I don't want to ask your any more details about your shed hunting because I know you're about ready to get worked up over that, and you're going to start going here pretty soon, and I might cause you to let out more than you should about where you go and what you do. So <laughs> I'm not going to put you on the hot seat. You know, shed, shed hunting spots are, are more sacred than elk hunting spots, if you can believe it. Really? Yeah. Yeah, and it goes hmm. back to that that principle of, you know, there's a very small band of elevation where elk and deer winter. And, you know, it's not like a, an elk hunting spot where they can be spread out and if somebody finds your spot, you can go to another one. If somebody finds your shed spot, then it's uh, it's a little more difficult. People, I mean, I know people that have gotten in fist fights over somebody else in their shed hunting spot. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Huh. Well, uh, you don't got to worry about that with me. Uh, when when are they starting to drop right now? They are, yeah. And it's, you know, every year is yeah. a little different by a couple weeks. This year seems to be a little later. Uh, and again, we're first, first week of April here, which is usually when I would say the primary uh, wave of antlers drop here in Idaho. Uh, you look in Arizona, and they're dropping late February into the first week of March. So they're earlier down there, uh, but the hmm. big ones, you know, we—I've uh, seen pictures of of bulls here in Idaho uh, as early as March 10th this year. But I also I was out last weekend, and we saw I think 32 bulls the one day, and only four of them had dropped, uh, and we didn't find any antlers. Found a couple old ones, but. Uh, I would rather, you know, wait until at least a good a good wave of them have dropped, not be out there pushing it as soon as one antler drops, and then the elk gets scattered, and it's... Uh, yeah. Well, I'll leave that all to you, Corey. Yeah. I got, I got better things to do. I got beaver to trap. <laughs> See, it's for me, there, it's twofold. One, it's there, there's something that gets in your blood about antler hunting, mm-hmm. and we talked about it. Uh, we went camping for spring break last week and we talked about that that you're either an antler hunter or mm-hmm. you aren't i mean it's not you, yep. you can talk till you're blue in the face telling somebody how cool and how fun it is and they're going to look at you and shake your head like you know i, I quit looking yeah. for easter eggs when i was 11 <laughs> this is you're just and it's an adult easter egg hunt that you're going on <laughs> <laughs> really it is but um you know it yeah. twofold is I hike harder in shed hunting season than I do in elk season. And it just oh, it I don't gives I me, am not going shed hunting with you now. <laughs> it just gives me a, an opportunity to be out in elk country and steep country and do do the best physical conditioning you can do to get you ready for elk hunting and that's hiking with a heavy pack on in elk country. Yeah. Well you say that uh, antler hunting gets in your blood. That's kind of like grouse hunting and beaver trapping. Yep. You know, it gets in your blood. I, I did a video on my YouTube channel a couple of weeks ago and I caught a beaver and everyone <laughs> said, Randy gets more excited about getting a beaver in his trap than when he shoots a big bull out. I'm like, huh, never thought about that. Uh, I guess we we all have our own vices. That's right. I, one of mine. I can so. verify that you get more excited about hearing a grouse drumming than you do about hearing an elk bugle. 
Oh, yeah. I have pretty bad hearing, but I can hear a grouse drumming and I can hear them doing their little beep, too, when they're walking <laughs> through the woods. Their little nervous beep that Randy's nearby. Yep. Yep. And my wife, she'll say, how did you hear that? When I talk to you, you can't hear that. I'm like, well, honey, you aren't beeping like that. That's right. You know? So, but uh, when you go out this time of year, I'll I'll be about three weeks behind you because my spring activity is spring black bear hunting. Uh, do you ever see black bears patrolling the hillside when you're out there? You know, this early, no. They'll they'll start coming out of their dens now. Um, anytime from now through the end of April, usually you'll start seeing them roaming a bit. But you know, mm-hmm. the predation. I think the the biggest predation that black bears have on elk is on the newborn calves. So it's usually right. you know that first week of June time frame when you see the bears kind of patrolling the edges of where the elk herds are. Outside of that, you know, leading yeah. up to that, they're mostly, they want to be left alone and just find a green hillside where there's some grass they can munch on. Yep. Mm-hmm. No, that's, uh, that's kind of my, my same observation. I do hunt them pretty hard though. Uh, one, I like being out there. I do like seeing the bulls with about, you know, three or four weeks of new antler growth. I, it's amazing to me. I've seen some bulls in mid-May and I'm thinking you must have dropped your antlers in January to have that <laughs> large of a set of antlers already growing but I I guess it just is a testament to how much energy they are investing in regrowing their antlers when the time comes yep yeah and in midsummer as they're you know peaking on their antler growth it's as much as an inch a day that they'll add on of antler growth wow <laughs> that's amazing when you think about that yep. that's that that is a lot of mass of uh, what is it at the time is it is it cartilage at the time or is it bone or is it at that time I it's, guess it's bone, it has, it? yeah it's forming into bone there yeah huh and you think about how much blood flow is going through that velvet yeah. to build or grow something of that size Oof. That's got to be draining on them. Yep. But they still get pretty fat over the summer. They do. (laughs) No, and I'm with you. I love being out there that first to middle of May and to see some of those bulls, the ones that you know are going to be the big ones because they're already, you know, starting their fourth points. And some of them are just, they have little nubs still on their heads. So that much of a head start, Mm -hmm. you know that those are the ones that started early and are putting more effort into it and going to be rewarded when they rub the velvet off. Well, I hope you find a whole bunch of them. Yeah, uh, it's we're we're going out early. We know that this trip is more of a scouting trip. We're hoping to find a few of the bigger ones that have dropped, but we'll be hitting it hard over the next three or four weeks and doing some good yeah. trips. And are you going to sell them? Yeah, we. Uh, I usually keep like the biggest set I find every year, but I sell everything else. Mm. It helps helps pay for my addiction. <laughs> oh, I, that doesn't sound very good, Cory. Your addiction. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. I, I sell all of my shed antlers to pay for all the gas money I spent and all the high oh. high chews and honey stinger waffles and mountain ops bars that I eat while I'm out <laughs> looking for sheds. Uh, all right. Well, 
I guess that's the, the, if you get exercise, you're also paying for your addictions. Yeah. Pretty hard not to yeah, I mean, support that. That's a win-win. That <laughs> don't, tell, don't tell my wife that you can recoup some money in that because she'll say, why are you leaving them in the trees? Why are you hanging money in trees? Oh. Yeah. I'll be like, because of my old buddy, Peter Rollo. He's the one who taught me that. Yeah. So, what you need to do uh, is you need to get yeah. you need to get uh, a waypoint that you can send mm-hmm. to me every time you find an elk antler. Say I hung one in a tree here. I hung one in a tree here, and then I can just okay. follow you along. Okay, I'm going to do that from now on. When I hang one in a tree, expect to get an email with coordinates. Excellent. <laughs> And if it's not there when you show up, yeah. let me know. Because I noticed my my camera crew has I I, I look going Craigslist and it's like New Mexico elk antlers for sale, <laughs> and I'm like I know that phone number. So the picture um, of them I remember hanging that in a tree. Yeah, so, I remember when you and I, I were in New know. Mexico, we were stumbling on a, a handful of sheds and. You hung a couple in trees that as you hung it in the tree and then walked on, your camera guys were definitely putting them on their packs. Yeah, they looked like a bunch of pack rats when we got back to camp. <laughs> and then we had Ben uh, We had Ben from Kana there, and he was uh, right. he had never found an elk shed, so he, he took one or two of them home mm-hmm. with him, I think. Yeah. Well, he asked me <laughs> if I would take them to Montana, so I hauled them home for him, and then eight or nine years later when he finally got to Bozeman, he's like, Hey, remember those elk antlers? Uh, who are you? Ben who? <laughs> no, he, he actually came up the next summer and got him. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, how many times have you flown to an elk hunt? Because we got some questions on that. Hmm. Logistics. I, I can think of one, the one that I was just talking about in New Mexico. Uh, mm-hmm. I've flown to hunt with people, that they had tags like in Arizona. Um, I think that's so the I question is it. what's your greatest logistic hurdle when flying to an elk hunt? You know, for me, when, when I came down and hunted with you, I think the biggest help on that was you had tents and cots with you. And I think mm-hmm. that flying that would be a, an obstacle. And obviously, I don't sleep on a cot very often. But since you had them there, I wasn't turning them down. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just, just all of the gear that you need, um, it's just yeah. it's a lot of baggage to take with you. And then if yeah. you get out there and, and forget something, you know, it just adds that much more complication to it. But I think yeah. the biggest logistic is when you kill an elk getting the antlers right. in the meat home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and most of the airlines anymore won't let you fly antlers. Uh, or if you do, they make you take the skull cap, cut it in half, and fold the antlers in a stack, tape them together, which a lot of people don't want to do that. So I know people who go down to the U-ship whatever, and they ship their antlers home. And then they fly home with the meat, but plan on bringing some coolers and plan on paying a lot of extra baggage. I was going to say, now anymore, your first bag, they charge you for it. So you get, and I think, what is it, a maximum of 75 pounds? So you go on an elk hunt, you might fill four coolers with 75 pounds of elk each, and 
those are overweight, yeah. oversized baggage in addition to the baggage fees they charge. So yeah, have a are you promoting the cause of shooting a spotted calf then because of the 75 pound <laughs> limit? You know, it's just something you have to take into consideration as you're figuring out logistics. <laughs> uh, point of that being is the cost of the elk hunt is seldom just the price of your tag. Because if you're paying baggage fees, uh, <laughs> your baggage fees are going to be almost as much as your elk tag. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it it creates a big level of complication. That's why I tell people if you can drive, you and a and one or two other people share the drive time, share the gas. Uh, listen to, listen there, to the Elk Talk vehicle. podcast. There, there you go. Yeah, whatever you do. <laughs> I mean, if you don't listen to the Elk Talk podcast on your way to your elk camp, you shouldn't have even went. Yeah, you, I mean, you might as well just not, burn that grab, tag on on the way there. Yeah, and if you aren't a member of the Elk Foundation, I mean, if you don't have those two things checked off in your column, you're you're just whistling Dixie, man. You you, you may as well just go play golf that day. That's kind of like in uh, the in the fine print at the bottom of my emails. I send out, you know, you have to have an unsubscribe link. So I give them the link, and I in parentheses below it, I say just a word of caution: unsubscribing from this email list has been linked to not filling your elk tags. So. <laughs> proceed with caution that is like so heavy on the bs line Corey. i I held you out to be a man of higher standards in that Uh, so we've covered this many times but i got the reminder of how i don't know if it's an intrigue issue if it's a a fear issue or discomfort issue, whatever. But when I was in Oregon doing these four days of Q&A sessions, a lot of questions about archery hunting elk, rifle hunting elk, whatever, in grizzly country. And so I gave them my ideas and my experiences of it in Montana. And I said, you know, if it's a discomfort thing, the way to get over that is learn more about grizzly bears. Learn more about where they're at at the time of year you're hunting them. Because I, th- I think some people have the false idea that grizzly bears are equally dispersed across the elk hunting landscape. Where in reality, this week of September, they might be up really high. The last week of September, they might be looking for that last little bit of green or berries on a north slope. Uh, another time, it might be doing something else. So I know a little bit about grizzly bears, uh, read a lot about them, talked to lots of biologists. And by knowing where the bears are in higher densities, the elk know that also. And so the elk are less likely to be there and more likely to be somewhere else. So I want to hunt in the places with low grizzly bear density and high elk density. That's so funny. Cause, my daily because <laughs> when I went hunting with you both times, <laughs> what you stuck me in the middle of the highest grizzly bear density area we could find. 
Well, that unit is just, there are no low-density areas in that unit. That That's a little bit of an exception. But I was just I was telling people, you know, you can do a few things, and a lot of it comes down to just learning more about grizzly bears and what their habits are, what they're doing certain times of year. And there's no guarantee that you're not going to have an encounter. But if you keep a clean camp, you, you kind of think it through and, and use as much common sense as you can, you're going to lower your likelihoods. Now, I told them as quick as I say that, someone's going to follow my advice and have an encounter, and they're gonna, if they survive, they're going to call me and say, Newberg, I need your attorney's name because I'm going to sue you. I did what, these, what, I told, what you told me to do, and I still lost my scalp. Uh, I'm Hugh Glass the second or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I always tell them that, look, you know, I, I get a little uncomfortable answering all these grizzly bear questions because it makes it sound like I've got a foolproof way, and there is no foolproof way. And if I have a streak of bad luck, you guys are going to read about me in the Montana news outlets of, hey, Randy Newberg's now a bear turd up on the top of the Madison range. Uh, and you guys will all have a good laugh at my expense. Um, but <laughs> it's just, there's some really good elk hunting in grizzly bear country. And I don't want people to have the bear presence either deter them from hunting some of those really cool places or if they do go and hunt it i don't want them to be so nervous and stressed out that they don't have a good time yep yeah and i think that's what it would come down to is if it's if it's going to take away from having fun on the trip because you are so nervous and and scared of the bears you probably shouldn't be hunting in grizzly country um i think you know for us there's always that uh, apprehension, you know, nervousness, mm-hmm. extra caution, but it doesn't take away from the fact that when we hear an elk bugle, we're still elk hunting and it's a lot of fun. Uh, we just take more precautions yeah. as we're doing it and realize that, hey, yeah. this is a, a higher risk activity than normal and we uh, yeah take those measures to avoid uh, a run-in. I did tell them that don't do like Corey and Donnie did and go set up a trail camera right on top of a of a gut pile and carcass in the middle of Wyoming's most dense grizzly country. I said, I can tell you what not to do. That's what I said. Before I tell you what to do, let me tell you what not to do. And what not to do is to follow what Corey and Donnie do. And people are like, what's that? Yeah, that was one of our less finer moments. Some guy comes up to me, though, after that, and he shows me a picture of a grizzly bear sow and a cub. And he says, you see this? He said, I heard what you said in there. I killed an elk in Montana, and I had a black bear tag. And I walked over to it, and something had already been at the carcass. And I thought, well, I'm going to sit here, and uh, I'm, I'm going to shoot a black bear. And I didn't realize what had already been at the carcass till I climb up this little knob above it and I see this grizzly sow and her cub coming. I'm like, you have no idea how lucky you were Yeah. that you walked in there and that grizzly was not on that carcass. Because he said, yeah, when I walked in the next morning, it was all tore and drug around and dirt all over. I'm like, please, next time, 
don't walk right into the carcass. <laughs> Stay on the hill up above or something. I said, you are really lucky if a bear had already got there that night. You are so lucky that that thing wasn't there defending that carcass when you walked up to it. Yep. But, yeah, once they claim it, it's it's there. Yeah, and he looks at his dad like, oh, <laughs> guess I missed out on that one. <laughs> Lesson learned for next time. <laughs> yeah, uh, and his dad kind of gave him the look like, son, I raised you better than that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we uh, we had several of those conversations as we were driving uh, 30 or 40 minutes up the road in the almost dark, realizing that our trail camera was still hanging on the tree and we had to go and get it. And it's like, man, we did hmm. not. I couldn't have come back and got it, yeah. got it next year or something. Yeah, we probably could have, but it was our last night there and we were packing up the next morning and... It uh, just seemed like a cool idea to get some grizzly bear footage on a trail camera. And it was. It turned out really good. You know, when you filmed with me in that one spot, Lauren was our camera guy. But now that I always have two camera guys with me, when we leave the truck in grizzly country, we have a protocol we discuss. Because this could be my only chance at a viral video, Corey. (laughs) I tell them, look, if a grizzly bear comes and starts chewing on me, one of you got to be filming. Who's filming? And they decide between them who's filming. I'm like, okay, you film it. The other one, try get the bear off me. Because <laughs> if I'm going to get my hide tore off my head and my eyeballs bugged out, I at least want to get a viral YouTube video out of it. <laughs> and uh, so yes. I hope I never get a viral video that way. But if if it happens... If I get attacked by a grizzly bear and it's not on film, this entire crew is fired. <laughs> Everybody. I'll probably, uh, yeah. We, we have I mean, a protocol, but it's quite a bit different than yours. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> it is okay. make sure the cameraman is not the slowest guy. Give the camera to the second fastest guy so he can film the slowest guy <laughs> getting mauled. And then I always make sure that I'm with two people that I'm faster than. Or that yeah. I have some well, kind, of a, a, some kind of a, a leveler there with me to make sure that the playing field is tilted in my favor when, when things go south. Like yeah. a like a wow. pistol with one bullet to shoot my buddy in the leg and slow him <laughs> down or whatever it might be. Yeah. Uh, you know, we joke about that. I hope someday I don't. Ever, <laughs> I hope this doesn't come back to bite me. No and, pun intended. Uh, yeah, no pun intended, where people are like, you know, he jokes about that all the time. We wondered how long it'd be before uh, it would change and, and we'd have to, we'd see it in reality. Uh, but the best elk hunting that I know of in Montana and Wyoming is in grizzly country. So I tell people that just to help them think about the mindset of, all right, if I want to go enjoy the best of what those states have to offer, I got to learn more about grizzly bears. I got to learn how to keep a clean camp. I got to learn how to take care of an elk once it's down and get it away from the gut pile and the carcass, all those things. And once they get those in their head and that becomes part of their their knowledge base, I think they'll be way more comfortable yeah. and they'll have they'll actually have a good time when they go there. 
Yeah, after three nights. It usually takes three nights of laying awake and hearing every pine cone that hits the ground and thinking it's a grizzly bear outside your tent. And then by the fourth night, usually you're so tired that you sleep pretty good. Yeah. So do we want to go into this next question? I don't know. This might be too loaded or too controversial. <laughs> but if Corey, ja- if Corey Jacobson was king for a day, Ooh. What would the tag allocation system or bonus point system or whatever you want to call it, what would it look like if you were king for a day? Hmm. That is a tough question. I I think mm. just on the spot without having time to put a I like to sit down with a piece of paper and a pencil and and draw it out and write out all of the pros and cons and really measure things well but just here on the spot answering i think i'd get rid of all bonus points and preference point systems and just go into a a random draw like idaho and new mexico have i would be with you I, i i would go for that i or if they told me you can't get rid of point systems because people already invested too much in them i'd say okay then if you're forcing me that we have to have that in the states that currently have them, then I'm going to say you cannot just buy a point. You have to apply. Yeah. You know, fish or cut bait here. Yep. None of this hiding over on the sidelines and buying a point every year. You know what that's going to do, though? That's going to make a a really hard-to-draw tag a hundred times harder because everybody that's forced to put in is going to put in for the hardest to draw a tag knowing they don't want to draw yet. And so the poor people who actually want to draw that tag, their odds are going to go down, which it just, it goes right back mm-hmm. into that mentality. The people who want bonus point and preference points want it because they want a tag in a hard to draw area and they think that's going to help them. And yeah. there is no method when you start involving a, a system like that that is going to be helpful to get somebody a hard-to-draw tag. Your best chance of drawing a hard-to-draw tag is with a random pool. Mm-hmm. Statistically, no, I'm, it doesn't make you. sense, that's, but it's that's the way it is. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm with you. I would, you know, looking at all the points I've got for sheep in a lot of places and building back up elk and deer and antelope and other places, it's like, you know what, I'd give all these away. To just go, and the, I'm talking about. I'm at max points for moose and sheep in Montana. Yeah, I would give those away to go to a random system. Yep. And people are like, "You've lost your mind, Randy." <laughs> yeah, I probably have, but I, I'm with you. And as far as the tag allocations, I don't have any problem with ninety ten. Yeah. In the states, I'm a non-resident. If I got to compete for ten percent, you know what? I'm good with that. I do wish that my home state of Montana, your state of Idaho, Arizona, I wish they, if whatever the percentage is, I wish it was a pool of tags for the non-residents so you knew who and what you're competing yeah. against. Instead of an up to I, a right. certain percent. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think there's some things the states could do easier or change and tweak just a little bit that, probably make it seem a little bit better or more fair without feeling that they got to have point systems. 
Uh, yeah. I, if you do feel like you got to have a point system, I also am a big believer that if you draw any of your choices, you burn your points. Yeah. If you buy a landowner voucher or acquire a tag in an auction or some other way, you burn your points. Hmm. Interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Imagine, imagine, imagine how less point creep we would have if that was the case. Yeah. I don't know if it'd be a lot. Are there enough of those tags to make a difference? But I, I think you should. Your point should get reset. <laughs> If you get a tag that year, I don't care how you get it. Yep. And and I kind of like Nevada's idea where they give you five choices, but if you draw any of the five, your points are gone. Yep. Yeah, and that's, you so, know, you talk about point creep, and it was never more evident to me than when I was applying for that mule deer tag in Colorado with 16 points. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just looking yeah. at, I looked back six years and six years ago, it took six less points to draw. And every single year, <laughs> without any exception, it increased one point yeah. of what it took to draw. And that's just, you yeah. get 100 people in that front pool and you're only giving out five tags a year. It's going to take mm-hmm. 20 years to get through that first pool on a preference point system. And by the time those people draw, yeah. it's going to take 20 points to draw. You know, and that's yeah. just, that's the... Yeah. That's the basics of a preference point system. You can look at it and say, there's going to be point creep for this many years based on this many tags and this many applicants. Yep. So I didn't know if that's what you were going to answer that, but I'm on board with you, man. I'm, let's get rid of these. Right? We need a T-shirt or a slogan. <laughs> you, know? <clears throat> I just, you know, I don't know what it would yeah. be. You know, down with points, or I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm sure. I'm sure some younger person, some creative person listening to this, could come up with a bumper sticker and a T-shirt slogan for us. Yeah, but, hashtag something. Yeah, no more points. <laughs> points suck. What's the point? I don't. There, there you go. That, see, yeah, that right there. That that's empirical evidence that. Engineers are more creative than accountants. <laughs> Which, I mean, we're at we're both at like the bottom of the say, list of creativity. We're, <laughs> we're fighting over the fleas at this point. <laughs> uh, all right, so we've resolved that we would both uh, get rid of tag allocate, or we'd get rid of point systems in our king for the day. changes to the tag allocation systems 90 10 work for you yeah no i think that's fair and i I do like the set aside where it is hey there's 100 tags residents get 90 of them non-residents here's your 10 and you guys fight over these and residents will fight over these it's just you know in idaho and it's i think the way that most states are structured. You're going to have a higher percentage of non-residents, at least the ratio of the tags that they're allotted, that 10%. And so mm-hmm. usually in Idaho, for most of the hunts, you're going to reach that 10% cap. Uh, but yeah. there's some that don't. You know, there's some that maybe there's 100 tags mm-hmm. and only four non-residents get them and 96 residents do. And yes, as a resident of Idaho, I like the fact that you know we get 96 mm-hmm. or whatever, but... 
as a non-resident right. in 49 other states, like you say, it's, uh, I think a set aside of 10% is, is fair. Yeah. I know what the hunters of Montana would do if we followed the Colorado rule where 35% of their deer tags go to non-residents and 20%, I believe, go to landowners. So residents, I could be wrong on this, maybe only 10% go to landowners, but I thought it was 20. So residents get 45% of the tags. You would need every fire department in Montana to be up in Helena saving the capital from the hunters who are marching to burn that joint down if you propose that in Montana. Uh, and I'm not saying go burn the capital down. And in, in context of recent events, please, folks, I'm not saying that. I just, it's a metaphor for, you know, people being mad. Uh, you got to. I got to quit saying I that. Say, you got to be I've careful for, what you say and how you say it. <laughs> I know. For years and years, I've always said, oh, we'd burn the capital down in Montana if we tried that. And now it's like, as I say that, I'm like, Randy, do you realize what year it is right now? You know, yeah. <laughs> you got uh, to so. be careful. They're going to take all of Dr. Yeah, Seuss's books the, off the shelves and cancel everything that uh, you do here if you keep talking like that. I know. I, I'm, I'm not the most self-aware guy. So <laughs> let me restate this. The hunters would be on the capital porch with pitchforks and <laughs> billy clubs and know everything that that's else any better Dem of an demanding just demanding to talk to their leader <laughs> they would not they wouldn't enter the capital why don't i stop why put yeah. the shovel down randy you're digging a deep hole here <laughs> you know when you're in a hole quit digging all right Next, Anyhow, next topic. <laughs> next question. Next topic. How would they respond? How would you folks in Idaho respond if you guys were going to give 35% of your deer tags to non-residents and 10 to 20% to, to landowners? So you guys only ended up with, say, half of them. I couldn't even imagine. I saw the response that, you know, non-resident set aside over-the-counter tags. There's a cap on that in Idaho, and they haven't changed for years but seeing the, mm -hmm. the way that the feathers were ruffled on all the Idaho residents over non-resident you know, encroachment on their areas in the last couple of years has been pretty eye-opening. And so you, you start taking things away from them. I mean, that's nothing's taken away in an over-the-counter situation. And especially where it's been capped right. from non, for non-residents, you go into a situation where they've been given 500 tags for the last 100 years and you take... 250 of those and give them away to somebody else and especially somebody that that lives across the mountain range from them <laughs> they wouldn't like yeah. it yeah uh, so i point point all that out that there's a big variety across the west uh i think not all elk units most elk units in colorado it's the same some of their higher demand it's only 20 percent go to non-residents wyoming we get 16 percent of the limited entry elk tags statutorily we get 7250 and the gap between the 16 percent of limited entry and the 7250 is made up in the form of general tags we get 30 some percent of of antelope tags and i think we get 30 some percent of the deer tags too so huh. those two states are don't they're, be they're bringing friendly. those ideas to montana yeah 
Yeah. Well, and, and you know, I think we're just seeing it. We saw the legislation this year uh, to change hunting. <laughs> I was trying to think of the right words mm-hmm. there, but there were a lot of regulations pertaining to hunting in a lot of different states that we haven't been bombarded with in the past, like this year. Yeah. But I have no doubt that changes are coming to those states that are friendly to non-residents, uh, or mm-hmm. it's going to be going to be harder to get a tag, whether that's in the form of financially or waiting in line or whatever it might be. But non-residents will be the yep. first ones to to suffer the consequences of limits. And that just goes back to what you've always talked about of creating a bigger pie. We're just, we're so worried about fighting and clawing to preserve what is ours that we aren't spending any energy on Mm -hmm. making more of them so that there's more for everybody. Yeah. So hopefully we can all focus our efforts on that and not fight and argue about Oh, give me my little crumb here. Yep. Let's make more. Let's make big pieces, not just crumbs. <laughs> let's make whole and, loaves. Uh, loaves yeah. of elk. Yeah. So uh, I got an email from RMEF yesterday. Uh, Montana, one of our. Uh, I am so upset that the legislative session isn't over right now. <laughs> Normally it's over by now. But in the stimulus package it passed, they sent us $3 billion to Montana out of the federal stimulus package. <laughs> and so our legislators decided we got to stay in session for 30 more days to figure out how to spend, how to spend that $3 billion. <laughs> Yeah. But, oh, while we're here, let's screw up. But let's throw some more hunting bills out yep. here. So we got a bill introduced yesterday that said, we want to make it illegal for a nonprofit organization to buy more than 80 acres of land wow. in Montana. So every access project I'm aware of in Montana, whether it was RMEF, the Trust for Public Lands, the Nature Conservancy, local organizations, none of those could have happened if this new bill passes. What's the purpose? Like, I mean, who thinks I, of this and know. what is their logic and reasoning? It yeah. just... Because here's how it works with RMEF. They go, they're kind of the transact, they're the deal maker. They have all these relationships. They go to these landowners and they're like, hey, we, you've told us to, to let you know if we ever had the money. We've put together some federal money, some state money, some partner money, some private donor money. We can make this work if you want to sell us this 300 acres over here that gets access to these 10,000 acres of public back behind. Are you willing to do that? And a lot of times the landowners are like, yeah, you know, we told you we'd do it. Let's let's get this done. So how it works, RMEF is actually the entity that buys the land. And immediately it turns it over to the Forest Service or the BLM or the State Wildlife Agency. So RMEF is the executor of the agreement. They don't hold the land for more than just however long it takes to change title. But this bill would eliminate the opportunity for nonprofits like RMEF to do that. And uh, so when we're wanting to build a bigger pie, like we're talking about, we, we got some of these legislative things that are coming up that 
Uh, uh, I just said this. I, I posted on my Hunt Talk website today. This is the biggest anti-hunting bill of the entire legislative session. Yep. And it is. Anti-access is anti-hunting. And, and I mean, <laughs> seriously, what is their logic? I mean, why would you limit a nonprofit to not be able to purchase more than 80 acres? That makes no sense on any front. No, I mean, it, at least it, I can see when, when they introduce something to, you know, get rid of hound hunting or something like that, I can see that people who are passionate anti-hunting, you know, their logic is right. we've got to get rid of it. But for something like that, 80 mm -hmm. acres for a nonprofit, I mean, who sat there and thought, we mm -hmm. need this. The people of Montana need this. It's going to be beneficial to them to do that. Yeah. And what it is, there's a nonprofit group in Montana that is buying ranches, willing buyer, willing seller, and they're restoring them back to native wildlife habitats. And on some of them, they're running bison. They have enrolled these ranches in the block management program, most of it. Uh, so this new nonprofit is opening up access that in most cases was closed previously, restoring the land to more native grasses and such. And there are people who just don't like that. <laughs> the same people who They're, forced wolves on us are probably the same ones that don't want the landscape restored to, to natural. Uh no, unfortunately, <laughs> different. It's, it's a diff, di, different set of dynamics. Yeah. But anyhow, <laughs> I, I, I show that, or I bring that up, in that there are groups out there that are working to build a bigger pie. And, you know, we rattled off RMEF and some of the other big land trust partners, uh, Nature Conservancy, the Trust for Public Lands, uh, you know, list goes on and on. Uh, but... Here, here's where I'm going with it long term. Did you read the Meat Eater article last week about we have too many hunters? No, I didn't. Oh, you were on spring break. I was, yeah, up I was Anyhow, Matt Ranella, super smart guy, uh, is does an opinion piece, which, you know, folks, an opinion piece is someone's opinion. And Matt makes the case that maybe we shouldn't be doing so much R3, recruit, retain, reactivate, because the woods are already too crowded. And, you know, when he talks about the frustration of showing up and there's four trucks at the trailhead when there only used to be one or two, I can relate to that. Uh, but as I was reading the article, I'm thinking, all right, this is going to talk, it's going to make the case for increasing access. And it didn't. I'm like, oh, man, come on. We, if anything, Matt's article illustrates the importance of access. Every time we lose access, and I heard this in Oregon and Washington, those hunters made this so clear. They said, here's what happened to us. The Timberland companies found out that they could close the gates and either lease to private parties you know, they, I guess they got some parcels where they do really big hunting leases or a bunch of their lands or you pay 300 bucks or something. And there's a lot of people, thousands of people used to hunt those lands, but they don't anymore because of these changes. And now they're all on public. And so the public land is crazy busy because of that. 
And so their warning to me is, whatever you do, make sure you conserve and preserve and protect as much access as you can, because here's what happened in Oregon. Here's what happened in Washington. And it's the, it's a larger scale of what happens every time bad hunter behavior causes a landowner to quit allowing access. He, he previously let, you know, over the course of a season, 40 hunters hunt in there. He just is so frustrated because of bad hunter behavior, you know, and left the gate open or who knows what. Now, nobody hunts it. Where do those 40 people go? Public. Yep. So I get Matt's point that the public lands are getting crowded. But my pushback to that would be the answer isn't to have fewer hunters. The answer is to work harder at access keep the access we have, add to it, educate, do whatever we can to build this bigger pie of access. Because all the recruiting and retaining and retention are three in the world. If we don't have a place for them to go, it's it's wasted energy. Yep. No, and like we've talked, and then, you, you have to have a certain size pool to be able to have a voice together. And if we lose that, right. we lose our voice. And yeah, we, we get the trailhead to ourselves for a couple more years, but then that gets taken away because <laughs> there's not enough hunters yeah. to make it worth it. Let's use it for something else. And yeah, we've just, yep. the, the only way to make this work is recruit more, retain more, and provide more access and more more of a pie. Right. Yeah. And the thread that weaves through all that is conservation. Yep. We we can't look at it in just one lens. And the conservation part of it is we need more animals on those landscapes that we do have access to. So we need more productive landscapes. We need better management of that landscape. We need maybe some changes in season dates, season settings, things that allow elk, deer, other wildlife to exist on those accessible landscapes so they don't all push somewhere else or there's no feed, no cover, no anything else, so they leave the public lands. So those three pieces, I, I can't unravel them. They're, they're, they're all part of the same discussion, and uh, they're all part of building the bigger pie, in my mind. Yeah, but, so what was the uh, what was the reaction to that article? Oh, you need to go do some. Reading. <laughs> I was going to say, Catch I can't imagine it was uh, favorable. No, the ne- the the next day, uh, Outdoor Life had a rebuttal about it for their uh, writers. Did a rebuttal on it, uh, and pretty much. Everybody had their rebuttal, and then I think I saw yesterday or the day before Meat Eater. Uh, Steve wrote something about his explanation of it. Like, you know, hey, he's my brother. He's got valid opinions, just like I got opinions. Uh, and so it was interesting to read it all. I'm I'm thankful that they threw it out there, even if I disagree with Matt's conclusion. I I certainly agree with his findings that, hey, we've, we've got a lot of people out there with this pandemic. Uh, and I'm getting frustrated with it. I I think when you read that part of it, it's like everyone's like nodding their head. Yep, yeah. yep. Uh, I was hoping it was going to be used as a 
as a piece that would say, this is why access is so important. This is why quality habitat, quality landscapes are so important. But it didn't go there. So I think that opened up their flank for a lot of criticism. Uh, but the value of them doing it is, one, they're this huge platform in the hunting space, and it's forcing us to have this discussion. Yep. And I'm, I want to, <laughs> I want to be part of that discussion, and I hope all hunters want to be part of that discussion. And it leads us to a place where we have more access, and we have more hunters, and we have more place to put them, and we have more wild animals out there on those landscapes. So, yep. And RMEF is playing a big part in that. Absolutely. So be a member, please. And how do they become a member? Go to rmef.org. That sounds pretty sign easy. Sign up. <laughs> you want, and if you want to email me after you do that, I'll give you Corey's credit card, and you guys can all put it on his credit card. <laughs> <laughs> it will go for a little while, but there will be a limit. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nah. I mean... We live in this amazing country. We have so much opportunity, so much of a positive possibility in front of us. I hate to see us get all, you know, just in this head-butting or, you know, finger-pointing. Because that's when the other interests, the other the folks who don't like what we do, that's when they win. Yeah. And it's good to have the discussion, good to have the debate. But let's move forward and understand it's it's more than just one of those three things. It's all three of them. Yeah, you know, I, that's that, I'll get. I better be careful. I'm about ready to fall off my plat my podium here where I'm giving my sermon. Could <laughs> <to> get hurt. <laughs> nope. It's uh, all my good grandma stuff. used to say. Grandma used to say, you know, when you get on a horse that high, it hurts when you fall. <laughs> or be careful when you're climbing up on a high horse. Ugh. All right. So, well, I better let you go, Corey. Right. Yeah. No, I like the discussion, though. And that, like you said, it opens up. Um, we may not agree with somebody else's opinion, but it opens mm-hmm. up a discussion. I think more importantly, hopefully, what comes from discussion is solution. And, you know, I think for for us as hunters, as individuals, we can feel pretty helpless. Like, what am I going to do? What what can I possibly do? And that is where the value of a of an organization like the Elk Foundation comes into play, because your little voice added there, you know, they are they're fighting to protect what we love and what we are passionate about. And I again I think everybody who hunts elk should be a member of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. And I can't think of a, a single reason or justification uh, or valid reason why, uh, why an elk hunter wouldn't be for $35 a year. It's a small investment to put our voice in the fight and to protect what we love. Yeah. Yeah. And if they want to know the real answers to all these questions that were asked of us, they should go to your University of Elk Hunting course and <laughs> sign up using promo code ELKTOC and they'd save 20 bucks because I am I just threw these notes away as I'm standing here. I'm like, I can throw this away. This was all BS. I made all this up. So <laughs> I thought if you, you were... want the real answer. <laughs> Isn't there something in the, in the beginning in our intro that says if you're looking for real elk hunting information, this probably isn't the podcast to listen to. I thought that's where you're oh going with God. this. Is, yeah, if you want the real yeah, answer. Well, 
we get we got a great group of people who spend all that time sending us emails out at the website and everything. I feel like we got to send them someplace where they get real facts <laughs> and real information. And your University of Elk Hunting course is the place to do that. Well, I appreciate that vote so. of confidence, but it is, uh, there's a lot of information there. And I think uh, the goal of it was to help people improve and increase in their success, regardless of, of how they define success. That's not for us to define. So if you're looking to yeah. increase your success, whatever that might be, uh, the University of Elk Hunting was created to align with that. So, and what was the yeah. promo code? Promo code Elk Talk, right? That's pretty simple. Isn't that what you told me? <laughs> Elk Talk. I think that, I don't know. You run the you run the promo codes for that operation. <laughs> I bet. I, I have created a couple. Yes, and the the Elk Talk promo okay. code is uh, one of the more popular promo codes. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, really good to hear. So, but anyhow, I hope that your 16 points in Colorado was, was going to be a worth, will be a worthwhile investment. I hope that everybody else listening, this podcast will probably drop a day or two before that deadline. So please don't miss your Colorado deadline uh, and get ready because not long after that, we have Nevada. Uh, And then what else? Idaho. Oregon, Oregon coming up, and then Idaho. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, Oregon, what's Nevada? Do you May have a date for Nevada? Yep, yep. May tenth, May tenth for Nevada. May fifteenth for Oregon, Oregon June fifth for Idaho. Yeah, and oh. then Wyoming. Not that this is elk talk, so we don't need to worry about Wyoming deer and antelope. <laughs> but I, but I do worry about it. That's May thirty first. So, yep. No, it's. A, I was telling you, but having 16 points is stressful. And especially, you know, it's, it's it? exciting as you're building them up. But when you finally mm-hmm. decide to apply and burn those, it's stressful. Yeah. That's, a, that's a lot of investment and a lot riding on that to, uh, to mm-hmm. go and pick a unit to hunt. And there's so many variables and so many factors that, you know, you just yep. sometimes don't think of. But I spent... I couldn't tell you how many hours I spent on Go Hunt just looking through filtering <laughs> 2.0 and then the draw odds and insider, the strategy articles. And, you know, with the dates being changed for, for the mule deer hunts, it presents uh, a lot of variability in what seasons people are going to apply for. So somebody who may have been building a lot of points for fourth season, now that third season aligns with what fourth season used to, a lot of those people might jump down and cause a lot more than point creep it'll be like point explosion in third season and so trying to factor all that in it was man when i finally pulled the trigger there was a big sense of relief okay we're done (laughs) and now now with that point explosion happening i probably won't draw but yeah you'll have went through all that stress for nothing but i know what you're talking about in 2016 i burnt 19 elk points in colorado wow for a third season hunt and the warning everybody gave is pray for snow. We showed up, there wasn't any snow at 12,000 feet, let alone where we were hunting. <laughs> it was hot. It was 70 degrees. And I find this bull down in this ugly, now the worst extraction I will ever have in my life. And it's a nice seven point bull. And I'm thinking, Hmm, it's first day. And I look over at Marcus, 
And this is where you don't want a camera guy who's enthusiastic. He's like, <laughs> he, he looks at me, he's like, you, you'll make that shot all day long. I'm like, well, yeah, but look how far down there he is. He's like, well, what else are we going to do for the next five days? That's you should true. shoot that bull, he said. <laughs> I'm like, well, I, I better make up my mind because it's getting dark. And he kept egging me on, egging me on. He's like, I'm on him. He wouldn't even let me debate him after a while. He's just eye <laughs> in the camera. I'm on him. Well, do you think I should shoot him or will we find a bigger one? I'm on him. Well, what do you think the pack out will be like? I'm on him. All right. Kaboom. Yeah. And we spent three days packing him out. Sounds like Marcus so. needs a raise. <laughs> no, he think he should have got put on probation. He contributed to your success. <laughs> he did. He definitely did. <laughs> and uh, he was smiles the whole time. He's just like, are you glad you shot that thing? Look at this thing. It's a beautiful bull. I'm like, yeah, it is, but we're going to almost kill ourselves here. <laughs> but I, I was having some of those worries when we showed up, set up camp. And it is so warm, and I looked at the forecast, and it's going to be in the 70s all week. I'm like, oh, man. Uh, all these years of building points, and I draw the card like this. And uh, so yep. the pressure's on now, Corey. Everyone's going to be wanting to know, one, did you draw? If you draw, then when you come back in November, they're going to be like, well, what'd you shoot? Yep. So, yeah. Well, hopefully we have a story to tell anyway. Yeah, for sure. But how about I hit the stop button here so people can get back to their lunch or their work or their nap or whatever we interrupted. Their workout, getting ready for elk season. Hopefully that's what they're doing, right? Mm. I hope that's what they're doing. That's not <laughs> what I'm doing. <laughs> well, I'm uh, uh, finishing packing tonight so I can go on my couple-day oh. shed hunting trip here and I better will, let uh, you go then. No, it's all good. I did most of it last night, so okay. I'm one of those guys. Well, I I hope you find a bunch of antlers. I will take pictures of them. All right. Thanks for being here, folks. Yep. Good luck in the draws. Yeah. We'll catch you next time.